Chapter Eight of Jimbo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jimbo by Algernon Blackwood, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Eight, The Gallery of Memories. With every one, of course. The measurement of time depends largely upon the state of the emotions, but in Jimbo's case it was curiously exaggerated. This may have been because he had no standard of memory by which to test the succession of minutes, but whatever it was, the hours passed very quickly, and the evening shadows were already darkening the room when at length he got up from the mattress and went over to the window. Outside the high elms were growing dim. Soon the stars would be out in the sky. The afternoon had passed away like magic, and the governess still left him alone. He could not quite understand why she went away for such long periods. The darkness came down very swiftly, and it was night almost before he knew it. Yet he felt no drowsiness, no desire to yawn and get under sheets and blankets. Sleep was evidently out of the question, and the hours slipped away so rapidly that it made little difference whether he sat up all night or whether he slept. It was his first night in the empty house, and he wondered how many more he would spend there before escape came. He stood at the window, peering out into the glowing darkness and thinking long, long thoughts. Below him yawned the black gulf of the yard, and the outline of the enclosing wall was only just visible, but beyond the elms rose far into the sky, and he could hear the wind singing softly in their branches. The sound was very sweet. It suggested freedom and the flight of birds, and all that was wild and unrestrained. The wind could never really be a prisoner. Its voice sang of open spaces and unbounded distances, of flying clouds and mountains, of mighty woods and dancing waves, above all, of wings, free, swift, and unconquerable wings. But this rushing song of wind among the leaves made him feel too sad to listen long, and he lay down upon the bed again, still thinking, thinking. The house was utterly still, not a thing stirred within its walls. He felt lonely, and began to long for the companionship of the governess. He would have called aloud for her to come, only he was afraid to break the appalling silence. He wondered where she was all this time, and how she spent the long, dark hours of the sleepless nights. Were all these things really true that she told him? Was he actually out of his body, and was his name really Jimbo? His thoughts kept groping backwards, ever seeking the other companions he had lost, but like a piece of stretched elastic, too short to reach its object, they always came back with a snap, just when he seemed on the point of finding them. He wanted these companions very badly indeed, but the struggling of his memory was painful and he could not keep the effort up for very long at one time. 
The effort, once relaxed, however, his thoughts wandered freely where they would, and there rose before his mind's eye dim suggestions of memories far more distant, ghostly scenes and faces that passed before him in endless succession, but always faded away before he could properly seize and name them. This memory, so stubborn as regards quite recent events, began to play strange tricks with him. It carried him away into a past so remote that he could not connect it with himself at all, and it was like dreaming of scenes and events that had happened to somebody else. Yet, all the time, he knew quite well those things had happened to him, and to none else. It was the memory of the soul asserting itself now that the clamour of the body was low. It was an underground river, coming to the surface, for odd minutes here and there, showing its waters to the stars just long enough to catch their ghostly reflections, before it rolled away underground again. Yet, swift and transitory as they were, these glimpses brought in their train sensations that were too powerful ever to have troubled his child-mind in its present body. They stirred in him the strong emotions, the ecstasies, the terrors, the yearnings of a much more distant past, whispering to him, could he but have understood, of an infinitely deeper layer of memories and experiences which, now released from the burden of the intermediate years, strove to awaken into life again. The soul in that little body, covered with alpaca knickerbockers and a sailor blouse, seemed suddenly to have access to a storehouse of knowledge that must have taken centuries rather than a few short years to acquire. It was all very queer. The feeling of tremendous age grew mysteriously over him. He realized that he had been wandering for ages. He had been to the stars and also to the deeps. He had roamed over strange mountains, far away from cities or inhabited places of the earth, and had lived by streams whose waves were silvered by moonlight, dropping softly through whispered palm-branches. Some of these ghostly memories brought him sensations of keenest happiness, icy, silver-radiant. Others swept through his heart like a cold wave, leaving behind a feeling of unutterable woe, and a sense of loneliness that almost made him cry aloud. And there came voices, too—voices that had slept so long in the inner kingdoms of silence that they failed to rouse in him the very slightest emotion of recognition. Worn out at length with the surging of these strange hosts through him, he got up and went to the open window again. The night was very dark and warm, but the stars had disappeared, and there was the hush and the faint odour of coming rain in the air. He smelt leaves and the earth and the moist things of the ground the wonderful perfume of the life of the soil. The wind had dropped. All was silent as the grave. The leaves of the elm-trees were motionless. No bird or insect raised its voice. Everything slept. He alone was watchful, awake. Leaning over the window-sill his thoughts searched for the governess, and he wondered anew where she was spending the dark hours. 
She, too, he felt sure, was wakeful somewhere, watching with him, plotting their escape together, and always mindful of his safety. His reverie was suddenly interrupted by the flight of an immense night-bird dropping through the air just above his head. He sprang back into the room with a startled cry, as it rushed past into the darkness with a great swishing of wings. The size of the creature filled him with awe. It was so close that the wind it made lifted the hair on his forehead, and he could almost feel the feathers brush his cheeks. He strained his eyes to try to follow it, but the shadows were too deep, and he could see nothing. Only in the distance, growing every moment fainter, he could hear the noise of big wings threshing the air. He waited a little, wondering if another bird would follow it, or if it would presently return to its perch on the roof. Then his thoughts passed on to uncertain memories of other big birds—hawks, owls, eagles—that he had seen somewhere, in places now beyond the reach of distant recollections. Soon the light began to dawn in the east, and he made out the shape of the elm-trees and the dreadful prison wall, and with the first real touch of morning light he heard a familiar creaking sound in the room behind him, and saw the black hood of the governess rising through the trap-door in the floor. "'But you left me alone all night!' he said at once reproachfully as she kissed him. "'On purpose,' she answered. He'd get suspicious if I stayed too much with you. It's different in the daytime, when he can't see properly." "'Where's he been all night, then?' asked the boy. Last night he was out most of the time, hunting." "'Hunting?' he repeated with excitement. "'Hunting what?' "'Children. Frightened children,' she replied, lowering her voice. That's how he found you." It was a horrible thought—fright, hunting for victims to bring to his dreadful prison. And Jimbo shivered as he heard it. "'And how did you get on all this time?' she asked, hurriedly changing the subject. "'I've been remembering—that is, half-remembering—an awful lot of things, and feeling, oh, so cold. I never want to remember anything again," he said wearily. "'You'll forget quick enough when you get back into your body, and have only the body memories,' she said with a sigh that he did not understand. "'But now tell me,' she added in a more serious voice, "'have you had any pain yet?' He shook his head. She stepped up beside him. "'None there?' she asked touching him lightly just below the shoulder-blades. Jimbo jumped as if he had been shot, and uttered a piercing yell. "'That hurts!' he screamed. "'I'm so glad,' said the governess. "'That's the pains coming at last.' Her face was beaming. "'Coming?' he echoed. "'I think they've come. But if they hurt as much as that, I think I'd rather not escape,' he added ruefully. The pain won't last more than a minute," she said calmly. You must be brave and stand it. There's no escape without pain from anything. If there's no other way," he said pluckily, I'll try, but—you see," she went on rather absently, 
At this very moment the doctor is probing the wounds in your back where the horns went in." But he was not listening. Her explanations always made him want either to cry or to laugh. This time he laughed, and the governess joined him, while they sat on the edge of the bed together, talking of many things. He did not understand all her explanations, but it comforted him to hear them. So long as somebody understood, no matter who, he felt it was all right. In this way several days and nights passed quickly away. The pains were apparently no nearer, but as Miss Lake showed no particular anxiety at their non-arrival, he waited patiently too, dreading the moment, yet also looking forward to it exceedingly. During the day the governess spent most of the time in the room with him, but at night, when he was alone, the darkness became enchanted, the room haunted, and he passed into the long, long gallery of memories. End of chapter 8